We're working our way uh, through the five solas of the Reformation as our kind of points of walking through some parts of Romans that tell some key and important things about salvation, really, is what we're talking about. Uh, these five solas, alone, is what that means in Latin, uh, don't necessarily, they, they're outcomes of the Reformation and, and ways to kind of summarize what happened. They, uh, as solas, they come a little later, but the themes were raised up beginning in the 1500s uh, through a whole number of reformers asking some key and important questions uh, that the church had always been asking, just answering them in a different way uh, as time and space kind of brought them to, to new ways of asking those questions, basically. Uh, how are we saved? What's, where does authority lie? Those kinds of questions. What does it mean to then live by faith? Uh, they're basic questions that we constantly ask uh, in the Christian life. So these solas represent uh, a way to kind of summarize some of the really key and important things that, that came out of the Reformation, starting in 1517 or so was the beginning of it. And so we've talked about sola, uh, soli deo gloria, that's the title of the whole series, for God's glory alone, and we're going to kind of bring that back in this particular Sunday. We've talked about uh, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and I should point out again that the Reformers were not afraid to look at what those in the past, those past theologians in the church had said, and they weren't even afraid of church tradition. They just asserted that Scripture is the thing by which we assess whether those are right or wrong, whether those are good or bad, whether those should be kept. So they could read Augustine or Jerome or Chrysostom or all these fathers of the church. But if they didn't line up with Scripture, they said, well, then Scripture is the thing that's right. That's the foundation. That's the measuring stick by which we measure all of this. We talked about in Christ alone last week, and really that pushes us into the next two weeks, that it's only by Christ that we are justified, that we're made right in relationship with God. And so today we talk about faith alone, and next week grace alone. It kind of, Christ alone pushes us into those areas. And when we talk about faith, whenever I come to preach on it, because I looked back and I've done it a number of times, um, I always find it very difficult uh, because you could say an awful lot about it. And the question is, of course, how do you narrow it down to what we should say? And the other thing about it is it's a very slippery term to people, I feel like. It gets defined or used in a lot of different ways. And, and if we passed out a little card and said everybody define faith, we'd probably have some level of commonality. But, but if you started to get outside of this space, you'd have uh, much more variance on what's meant by faith. Um, it's not simply a religious term, but it gets put in that camp quite often. We can say that I have a faith or I have a faith tradition. I'm faithful to my wife. We can use it in different ways like that. And we can understand what we mean, but it, it gets reversed when people use it in simply a, a religious sense and in a negative sense sometimes in our culture, where somebody will say, and I, I read it this week on a comment on somebody's uh, an article somebody had posted that faith really just means blind adherence to, uh, to a blind or a blind adherence to a set of beliefs in spite of evidence to the contrary. That that's what we mean by faith. It's basically, it's a whole lot of nothing is what they're saying in that. And it's only in the religious sphere. Or we also live in a culture that, uh, that tends to, to look at it sometimes and think, well, it can change based on circumstance. So it's not so much concerned with truth as it is with authenticity. Do I authentically feel it versus is it actually true and I believe it? 
So you can see it's, it's kind of a slippery uh, world that we walk into. Now, I used it a couple weeks ago, but the definition that, uh, well, here, yeah, the definition that Easton, uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary uses, I think, really teases out what's meant by faith better than some of the regular dictionaries you'd find online or in your library or on your bookshelf. Um, he says, faith is, in general, the persuasion of the mind that a certain statement is true. Its primary idea is trust. A thing is true and therefore worthy of trust. So it's not just a matter of something being authentic, although somebody could argue that might be the case. You know, we might think it's, it's true, but it's not. Uh, but it really rests on the truth, but it goes further than that. Am I actually putting any faith in that thing? Am I actually trusting that it's true? Am I actually uh, uh, showing that with observable action in some way? And, and uh, just to once more look at the, the slipperiness of this, I was reading a, an article this week uh, that was talking about faith and belief, and it said, well, faith is deeper than belief. Faith goes further, and, and it, it, it went into flowery language to explain what faith is, and it never actually defined it, never actually said anything. All that to say, this isn't actually a giant mystery, what faith is when you get down to it. And faith and belief really are the same thing when you get down to how to define them. In fact, when you look at Romans, and we're going to look at Romans 5, Paul, through the book of Romans, will use faith and belief, or at least that's how it gets translated. They mean the same thing. There's not some deeper meaning to one or the other. Do I believe it's true, and then do I put my trust in that thing? That's all we're asking, and that's where we're going today. So let's look at Romans 5. Let's look at one, verses 1 and 2. I do encourage you to follow along in any format you have in front of you. Romans 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace, in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. If we have this faith in Jesus Christ, then what I'm going to propose to you today is that, and what Paul is saying is that faith in action reveals God's glory. We are, by our lives, going to show who God is if our faith is in Christ. It's going to come out of us. And Paul uses this word right here at the end of verse 2, the glory of God. Glory, what is that but simply God visibly seen in some way, a manifestation of who God is or of God's characteristics that we can observe. That's what glory is. And first and foremost, we can see God's glory revealed in the most pronounced way in Jesus Christ. That's how we see God's glory at work first. It's revealed as, in, as God comes in a person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as we talked about last week, makes justification possible. We can't be right with God and thus be able to reveal God's glory unless we have faith in the work that Jesus Christ has done. Unless Jesus has actually done that work, we can't be right. We're out of sync. We're out of sequence. And we're out of communion with God otherwise. It's only Jesus who makes justification possible. And the work of Jesus on the cross and the completion through the resurrection is effective and able to save everyone. It's got that power and that ability. 
Now, I'm not arguing that it does. I'm not arguing universalism this morning. I'm saying simply that it has the power to make that justification possible for everyone who's ever existed and will exist. It has that. But what we're, what we're left with and why faith becomes so crucial is it's, it's like when I was in science class in high school, I think we learned about potential energy and kinetic energy, and they put a ball up on a little you know, a table. And there's potential energy right there that could be released when that ball somehow leaves the table. But none of that energy gets released until the ball leaves the table. Jesus has all power through his work. It's effective to save everybody. But we have to have the faith to actually trust in that, to actually believe that that's what's happened and live into it. So we see God's glory first and foremost in Jesus Christ, in, in the most full way we're going to see it at this stage. But then we can also be people who reveal God's glory when we have faith in the work that Christ has done, when we are actually justified or put right in right relationship with God. At that point, then, we can reflect God's glory fully or more fully than we can now. We, we should point out we're all made in God's image. There is a sense in which God's glory is, is faintly there, in us. But we've all sinned, as we saw that last week in Romans 3, and the relationship with God is broken, but so the image is, is smeared in some way. It's like when you uh, throw mud at a window, some sunlight's going to get through, but not enough. And so it's, we're kind of like that. We're smeared, if you will, or broken in some way. And as we persist in our sinful state, not being justified, well, then we don't really reveal God's glory. In fact, we do it less and less rather than more and more. We have to be justified in order for that to happen. And the goal, Paul tells us here, is that we would reflect God's glory, and he uses a specific term that we would have peace with God. This idea of shalom is what's behind this. Peace with God, that everything would be right and whole in that relationship with God, and we would be made whole as part of that. But if we lack peace with God, one might ask, then what do we have then in, in a state without peace with God? And Paul tells us in verses uh, 6 through 8, he says, You see, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners... While we had that broken relationship and we were marred, we were smeared, we were broken, however you think of it, vandalized, Christ died for us. Now this verse has, uh, I found it very interesting uh, when he talks about righteous and good. I've always thought, well, why are those, they seem like they should be reversed. Uh, as I looked at it this week, the righteous person is the one who's respected or respectable, but we might not actually know that person. There's somebody we might view from afar. The good person might not be quite in the same category as righteous, but they might be someone that we're actually connected to, that we actually uh, love, father, mother, child, sibling, friend, those kinds of relationships. At least that's what some other biblical, uh, external biblical literature seems to point to, those ideas. But here's the, the truth of the matter for us. It turns out we're neither righteous nor good, is what Paul tells us. How do you like that this morning? You're neither of those categories. We're, we're sinful, is what he says, without being justified. And so this is where uh, we, we actually have to ask an important question if we're talking about faith. Do I believe that God has done something through Jesus Christ which I could not accomplish on my own? 
Now note the way I've stated it. Not did God do something through Jesus Christ. That would be a, fa- a, a truth statement, you know, that, well, did he believe? Okay, sure, yeah. Do I actually believe that God did something in Jesus Christ that I could not do myself? Right? Because then we have to ask, well, what do I do with that? Early uh, sort of pre-covenant covenant uh, thinker Paul Peter Waldenstrom, P.P. Waldenstrom, uh, states in his most famous sermon, he says, God's love is never presented in the scriptures as the result of the son's sacrifice, but as the cause and basis of it. It does not say because God gave his son, he could once again love the world. No, because God loved the world. For this reason, he gave his son. And so the question of faith is, do I believe that God has uh, not simply done the work of reconciliation, but am I going to trust that it's for me, that I need to live into that as well? Faith in action reveals God's glory. Now, if we're going to proclaim that, how do we get there? Um, the first thing I would say is that right relationship with God, which is what justification is, right relationship with God is not just given, obviously it is, but it must be received. That's the faith component. We must actually say yes to the thing that's being given. That's why this morning I'm not arguing universalism. Of course, God's uh, work on the cross has all power to save, but it doesn't save everybody. Uh, A universalist position is that by default, everybody is saved. God's work covered everybody, and God's love is expansive enough that, of course, everybody's going to be drawn in just by the nature of the fact that they're alive and God loves them doesn't matter what you've done. Now, I find, though, that people who hold the universalist position have a really hard time reconciling people like Hitler and Stalin and some of these others. So there seems to be, well, except for those people, God will save everybody just by their very nature. I don't want to be unfair to the position, but that seems to be one of the sticking points. And then, of course, we have a a cultural issue where we are more and more people who are incensed when we don't have our rights respected because we have the rights to an awful lot of more things than we ever did, it seems like. And so uh, this is a very popular position in many circles because how could God possibly withhold his love from me, of all people, right? I couldn't be that bad, right? But Paul says you're neither righteous nor good. So we need to actually accept the thing that's being given. The other thing is you can't work for it. We pointed that out last week. Uh, What Jesus did, we can't do ourselves. That's what, from the very beginning of of the Reformation, that's what Luther, Martin Luther, was really upset him the most that sparked everything when he was speaking out against indulgences in his 95 Theses. You can't buy yourself uh, into heaven. And he was especially upset about the fact that not only can you not do that, but you can't take the money from the poor uh, to make them pay for it and then expect that the rich can just, you know, the poor can get 100 years taken off purgatory and the rich can get 10,000 years taken off purgatory because they have more money. It was just, all of it was just a giant injustice. But you can't, you can't buy it. You can't work for it. It's already done for us. Faith is saying, I trust that it's been done. Now I'm going to live into that. And faith implies then a willingness Not just a passiveness, but a willingness to enter into what God is giving. That salvation that's being presented. And so we heard this morning from Romans 4, the case of Abraham, which would have been the prime example uh, that Paul and Israel through the past would use to point out God's work and God's faithfulness uh, at play and, and how faith worked out. 
God made this covenant promise with Abraham. We heard some of the sort of the re, re-upping of that in Genesis 15 this morning. And that covenant relationship is what carried on. That's what God is being faithful to throughout all of Scripture. But what's interesting is when it comes to the issue of faith with Abraham, Abraham is actually in a family line that goes back to the beginning. If you go to Genesis and you go to Genesis 12, you see the beginning is of that covenant. But if you go to Genesis 11, right after the Tower of Babel, there you have Abraham's family line going back to the beginning. Abraham, it seems like he comes out of nowhere in the text, but no, he's been part of the whole family line going back to the beginning. He can see and measure God's work and activity through his family line, even if it seems like it comes out of nowhere. And that tells us something about faith, that faith is not blind. It's not based on nothing. He has a history, a record of God's work that he can look back to and say, okay, God's been working with my family up until now, and now he's going to work with me in a particular way. Faith is not blind. Blind faith isn't even a term, in my opinion, uh, because uh, Abraham and his descendants after that, you can see how faith works out. They can look back to God's track record after Abraham of faithfulness, and they can look back and say, okay, God has been faithful. God will continue to be faithful. Uh, How this plays out, if you want to think of this in everyday life, uh, uh, faith is is never really uh, faith Blind faith is wishful thinking, is all it is. So imagine somebody comes to you and says, there's a sale on cheese over at Super Saver, right? And you say, okay, I trust that person's opinion. I believe that they know that there's a sale there. I'm going to go to the sale. You have faith. You follow through, right? You wouldn't just naturally think, uh, cheese sale at Super Saver. I sure hope it's happening. I'm going to go over there. That's not faith, right? That's wishful thinking at that point. They can look to a record, and they can see God has been at work. I know that God will be at work based on that record. It can be based on the testimony of others. It can be based on your own testimony, but you can see God's action. Now, we have a a distinct advantage uh, in our time because we live after then the resurrection of Jesus Christ which completely rules out blind faith, in my opinion, because you can study that, and you can see that the thing, uh, it makes the most sense of everything that's said about what happened with Jesus, that the resurrection indeed occurred. We can look and see Jesus or God's track record throughout the Old Testament, and we can point to the resurrection, the quintessential moment that, that stands as the, the thing for our faith, uh, on which our faith rests, and, and we can live onto that claim that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. You're still living in your sins. It's a very objective thing to look back at. And we can see with faith that God has been faithful. We can put our trust in him and walk forward with him, accepting this gift of salvation. The other thing to ask of of how we get there is that faith takes what God will do, which we would call hope, and asks us to live that way now, which is really the idea of reflecting God's glory. This is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom is going to come, and it's sort of like this gradual progression of how the kingdom works out. And we're called to be citizens of the kingdom, to live like the kingdom is fully here, even while it's emerging in our midst, to take our hope and live it in reality now. 
And one way that we can sort of, uh, kind of, we get tested on this that Paul brings up is what do we do when things go wrong in life? Now, we also, we live in a part of the world uh, that, yeah, we've got a lot of things we could say about it, but um, we have this distinct term, first world problems, which is just a, a crazy thought in general when you look at human history and, and how people live in a lot of parts of the world, right? Uh, we complain about slow Wi-Fi, for goodness sakes, or when the USB cable, we try and put it in the wrong way. Oh, these things are so frustrating. Turn it over, right? Um, I, the power has gone out here before, and it's like we can't do any work all of a sudden because we're so used to electric lights and, and uh, Internet and all these different things. Uh, we get a paper cut, and we think it's a, the world is catastrophic, you know, coming down on us, all kinds of things. We have first-world problems. Of course, we experience much deeper things, right? We experience job loss and, and loss of life and medical problems and all kinds of things. But, but we have enough of these first-world problems, and we have enough needs that, we, uh, that are really wants, but we've translated over into the need category, that we kind of have lost perspective far too often. And so we have this desire and belief that we can generally live a pain-free existence. So when small bits of pain come along the way or hardship, they seem like they're way out of proportion to what they actually are. Here's the problem. For us in the church, sometimes that comes in here pretty heavy too. And so sometimes even in our spiritual lives, we look for spiritual painkillers, right? We want a Tylenol to take care of our soul, basically. And spiritual painkillers threaten our hope. Where when, when difficult times come because we haven't prepared for those, we try and reshape our faith to fit the narrative. We try and reshape what prayer is to say, well, if you don't get good things, then maybe you're just not praying right or whatever. We try and change things around because we don't have uh, a theology and, and a life experience that can, that can deal with those things when they come. But Paul tells us something about living into this glory in three verses 3 through 5. He says... Okay, he says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That right there is a phrase worth dwelling on. But he says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Is that a good word this morning? We also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If we keep that in context, and we're going to live in and boast in the glory of God through thick and thin, let me just point out three truths, one of which we've already heard. Three truths to, to boast in God's glory. The first thing is to remember that faith in Jesus will not prevent hard times. Sometimes it gets more difficult with faith in Jesus Christ, but we're powered by the Spirit to continue on in those moments, is what Paul tells us. And in fact, the difficulty, faith in Jesus will not prevent hard times. Saying it will makes those hard times even harder, because then we don't really know how to deal with them. Paul says, no, we glory in sufferings. It's a hard word. He says, we glory in this. We know that we're, we're living out our hope now, even though it may be difficult. The second truth is that faith that persists through the hard times makes you more like Jesus. It moves you into that, that direction. We love, I don't know about you, but we, I, generally speaking, I, f I find that people love rags to riches stories. 
somebody who, who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and made it in this world. They came from nothing and they made it to the top. We celebrate cancer survivors and we should, right? We watched documentaries on Ernest Shackleton and other survivors, you know, the days before Gore-Tex when he made it across Antarctica with his whole team alive, and they made it. We, we actually like perseverance and persistence. That, that matters to us. Paul says it matters in our faith, that we would persevere in the difficult times. There's no value in a faith that changes with the seasons. That when hardship comes, it caves. There's, there's no value to it. Paul says, you want a faith of value? Persevere in these times. That's how character is formed and it's shaped. It's built through those moments. And you'll become more like Christ. And finally, the point that we've made the whole time is that faith in action reveals God's glory. It reveals it in you and me. Why? Because God has done something to reconcile you to himself that you could not do on your own. And so God reveals his power working in you through that act of justification. The question that we have to ask today is, do I believe it? Do I believe that's what God has done? Am I living into it? Let's pray. Father, it's a joy and a delight to be in your presence this morning. And there are days when it feels like it's really hard to persevere. Where suffering comes and we say, I don't want it. God, we don't desire it. But I pray that as your people, that when those difficult moments come, we would persevere and we would recognize the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. Father, would you be the fuel in our lives as you've already justified us who believe. Will you bring more of us into your presence this morning? And will you make us like your son, Jesus Christ, so we can reflect your glory to those who don't know you, to those who remain unjustified? May they move into the category of being the righteous because we lived as your glorified people. Father, we pray this in your name that we would believe, help our unbelief this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen.